um, I'll, I'll, uh, start recording, start recording. Can I say something? Let's talk about, ooh, do I want to bring that up? It's nothing bad, but do I want to bring that up? Oh, oh, guess what, guess hey, what? Hey, 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 let's sit down, let's sit down, let's sit down before he gets active. It's about to get active, it's about to get active. Welcome to the Created for Greatness podcast, hosted by the Strive Initiative and the Pottstown School District. Conversations from students about vision, dreams, aspirations, and thought-provoking ideas. All right, people of Pottstown, we are back. Today, it is only the two of us here, Devin Green and Henry Fetterman, but to make up for the other three's absence, we are here having an interview with an amazing person, um, this being Dr. Jennifer Wiseman. Now, I'll read her first, I'll read the first paragraph of her bio off of NASA. It is, um, Dr. Jennifer Wiseman is a senior astrophysicist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, where she serves as the senior project scientist for the Hubble Space Telescope. Her primary responsibility is to ensure that the Hubble mission is as scientifically productive as possible. Previously, Wiseman headed Goddard's laboratory for exoplanets and stellar astrophysics. She started her career at NASA in 2003 as the program scientist for Hubble and several other astrophysics missions at NASA headquarters. All right, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview as we ask a whole bunch of interesting questions. <laughs> so I was going to ask, what inspired you the most as a kid? Like... I, a lot of us find what we want to do in our future just through just living life as a child. And that's what I was interested in asking. I was inspired by a lot of different things. I think one of them is just uh, nature. I really mm. enjoyed being outside. Um, I had the privilege of, of living in a rural area out on a farm so i had the chance to actually just go out and wander in the woods and and not everybody has that chance but wherever you are you have some way of 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 going to a park or something and so i enjoyed being out in nature in the forest or we also had some lakes and rivers nearby i love just kind of being by the water or in the water or, um, and I love wildlife. I still do. I love all kinds of animals. So, so just, first of all, just enjoying the, the beauty and the dynamics of the natural world is something that I think influenced me all through my childhood. And then I also enjoyed other kinds of things like music. Um, we had a strong music program in my school system. So I was able to really learn about music. Um, I played the clarinet in our school band and and was able to go on to state uh, um, summer camps and orchestras and things. And just, I, I enjoyed music, but I like other kinds of music too. I mean, I like to mm -hmm. dance. I like other kinds of, <laughs> so I, I just enjoy different types of music. And, and um, so I think I had, you know, a, an interest in a variety of topics, but it was that interest in nature and a particularly looking up at night we had dark skies which is hard to find right. now but I, we, I was curious about what i saw in the night sky stars and so forth and and then when i was growing up we were getting the first images from 
the planets in our solar system, the first kind of close-up pictures from these probes that had been sent out uh, uh, to explore them, the Voyager probes were taking close-up pictures of planets and their moons and and I was able to see them on television programs. So I just thought this was fabulously interesting. And I I just kind of wished I could be a part of that enterprise. I didn't know how. I didn't know how you would go into a space-related career. But anyway, I think all of these things, just a love of nature and, and just a love of all things beautiful was part of what started me out. That's awesome. Was it... um? Was it a type of thing where from the start in childhood, you knew, you know, this, I wanted to do something with this, something with astronomy or nature or something like that ever since you were a kid? Or was that something that later on you were able to identify? Yeah, good question. Um, I don't think I had a strong sense of you know, I definitely want to do this, that, or the other, um, because I was interested in so many different things that I just kind of wanted to to keep involved in many things. And I, th- I think that's a good thing. I think uh, life is enriched if you, you know, uh, keep in touch with a lot of things, artistic things, scientific things. Um, I was very interested in 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 our church and our religious uh, heritage and, and faith as well. And so just all kinds of aspects of life. But as I was, you know, getting into high school and so forth, I think I really was peaked in my interest of space, because as I mentioned, these pictures were coming back in from these probes. And I wanted to know if there's some way that I could get involved in that kind of enterprise. Either, either I didn't know whether I should try to be a, an engineer or a, a, um, you know, an astronomer or even try to be an astronaut. I didn't know what one does. My parents didn't have the chance to go to college. So I was in that kind of first generation of of uh, family members, my older siblings, first of all, going to college and then encouraging me and my other brother to go. So, so, um, but I was also pretty good in music, you know, so I think it was kind of a toss up. I was sort of interested in maybe going on into studying music more seriously, but um, I don't know, something about my curiosity with space. And, you know, when I was in junior high and high school, the um, some of these movies were starting to come out too, like the first Star Wars movies and all of that stuff. And so space was on everybody's mind and it was all very interesting and exciting. So I just thought, well, you know, maybe, because I was pretty good in math and science in, in, in high school, maybe I could go on and major in something in college that was science related and see if I could um, direct that in a direction that would connect with space exploration. And so that's what I ended up doing. Would you feel that other subjects besides astrophysics helped you uh, really achieve a good amount of your goals? Oh, absolutely. Yes. So um, I, uh, clearly, you know, studying sciences, uh, physics and, and chemistry, even biology were very important to my formation as a scientist and mathematics, um, uh, you know, algebra, trigonometry. We didn't have calculus in my high school, so I had to learn that in college. But, uh, you know, all of those things fit in. But also, my goodness, uh, literature, English, you know, learning how to to really read for comprehension learning how to express oneself um, through writing, through speaking, 
These are critical skills. Um, I also, as I mentioned, believe that things you might not think are related, but, you know, music and the arts, they help us understand expression and beauty um, in a way that's really uh, um, intertwined. In fact, music, the basis of music is a lot of mathematics and physics, you know, so (laughs) these things uh, um, mesh together. And I think some very practical skills like learning how to type, you know, I, I, I can't imagine a more useful skill now that we're all using computers. So, so I, um, I wish I'd learned a little bit more about, you know, accounting and finances and all that kind of stuff. But um, I I do think it's really important uh, for a variety of skills, even if you're going into a technical career path, you need these other skills to help you succeed. And also, even if you don't end up in a technical uh, career path, we need different kinds of career skills in the space exploration world. We need people who are good at writing. We need reporters. We need people who are good with computers. We need computer science. We need people who are good with budgets and managing. Um, We need teachers who can explain to others what we're learning in space exploration. So there's all kinds of skills that are needed in the space exploration world. And so there are many th- many types of, of career paths one can take that can still contribute to space exploration. That's great. I, um, I'm going to take a second to, to throw a little bit of a selfish question at you. Okay. Um, <laughs> what would you say to someone who wants to be exactly where you are, say, <laughs> in as a physicist or in an observatory or with um, one of the most powerful telescopes in the world? Well, uh, first of all, I I didn't have a real clear, you know, dot to dot plan. So I think um, taking one step at a time, uh, my own career path took directions that are not not the same as other people who also went into physics and astrophysics. I ended up doing some years as something called a congressional fellow. I worked on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Uh, for a year and a half, and um, that was a terrific experience, but it wasn't doing scientific research, you know, but that taught me some other skills. I did some summer internships that weren't directly related to astronomy and astrophysics. One of them was related to life sciences that relate to space flight. So, um, but so here's some advice I would give if you're if you're kind of interested in astronomy, astrophysics, space related science, is to again you know take as many science courses as you can in mathematics in high school, but also other, you know, be well-rounded, take, take literature and arts and, and have some other activities too. And then in university, if you really are serious about going into astronomy and astrophysics, or you think you might be a good major is actually physics uh, because um, that's uh, um, graduate schools will look kindly on your application. If you're a physics major, or if you've had a lot of physics in your undergraduate course, even more than majoring in astronomy, that sounds kind of strange, but, but it's understanding the physical basis for the sciences. That's really key. So either majoring in physics or at least taking a lot of physics in during your major is one thing I would advise. Secondly is, um, 
trying internships. Uh, internships are short-term work projects. Sometimes you can get paid as an intern, uh, sometimes not, but um, you can do them during your undergraduate years in in college. Usually your university will help you find internships. You can do them during the semester, usually like working, you know, just part time in, in, a, in a research lab that has that welcomes undergraduates or um, or uh, sometimes um, in the summers, you can get an internship off site at, at a national science facility. So these are really good to have because they give you a, a, a sense of what it's like outside of the classroom to work in a real scientific environment. And it doesn't have to be doing something you think you want to do for the rest of your life. It can be something that's just for that, those few months. But I did several of these internships over my undergraduate years. You can even in high school now, there are some some high school level internships um, uh, that you can find uh, if you look hard enough. So I, I um, recommend internships, especially during college. They give you some experience. They help you better understand where your interests and skills lie. Um, I did my first one actually in an engineering lab, an aerospace engineering lab, because um, it sounded so cool to work in an aerospace engineering lab. And then I found out kind of on my first day there that I'm I'm not really the hands-on work with the machinery kind of person. Uh, tinkering, that's, a, you know, engineers are great at that. And that's when I it helped me understand that my personal interests are more, you know, in in the mind and, you know, using computers to do image processing, that kind of thing, but not in the mechanical. Others had just the opposite experience. You know, they they did some of these cerebral internships, but then when they got the engineering one where they could actually do tinkering with stuff, they said, that's me, you know. So these internships really um, help, I think. And then thirdly, I would say, oh, by the way, if you're interested in an internship with NASA, um, you can look on a website that's called intern.nasa.gov. And if you search on intern.nasa.gov or go to that website, you'll see how you can can apply to be a NASA intern at a NASA center. Thirdly, I would say, you know, uh, be open to different directions. You know, I, I didn't really know I wanted to major in astronomy until I was or I, in sorry, I majored in physics, but I didn't really hone that down until well into my undergraduate years because I thought I might want to go into engineering, but I wasn't sure. And then it wasn't until my senior year of college that I decided that I had taken a couple of introductory astronomy classes and I found them fascinating ways to apply physics to studying the universe. So then I realized that maybe I would go on into graduate school and study astronomy and astrophysics. But I didn't really know that till late in later in my undergraduate years. And then I even then I thought going into astronomy and astrophysics, having taken a couple of introductory courses, I thought that I wanted to do cosmology, which is the study of the universe as a whole. I mean, how cool is that? I wanted to understand everything. But uh, but the one thing I was real sure I didn't want to do was radio astronomy, working with these dish telescopes, because in my intro class, it just didn't seem as interesting. We weren't, you know, using those. You don't always see the the pretty pictures and all that. Well, I, so I was pretty sure that that was the closed door. Well, then in graduate school, after one semester in graduate level study, I um, I started working with a professor who did radio astronomy, and it turns out that that 
is very interesting. And that's what I ended up doing for my doctoral work. So all that is to say is that, you know, don't be too um, uh, uh, strict in your self vision because you never know the different paths that you might go. But those are some of the, the, some, some of the advice I would give. Yeah. honestly it's very inspiring but uh so my sister unfortunately couldn't be here today and she has a really important question i feel uh has being a woman affected your stem career i came along um at a time when women were um starting to be more welcomed into scientific uh, uh, majors in the universities. And <clears throat> so I think I benefited from the generation of women before me who really um, kind of broke down a lot of barriers and, and were very strong women going, you know, sometimes as the only woman in their class or whatever that were study that were majoring in physics or going on to become to getting their doctorates and, 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 you know, really, uh, um, becoming leaders in the field. But in astronomy and astrophysics, we have some major pioneers in modern astronomy who were women. Uh, I think of Vera Rubin, who studied galaxies, helped us understand the, the existence of dark matter. Um, Cecilia Payne Kaposchkin is another one. I mean, I could go on and on. There are uh, Mariah Mitchell. So we already have these these women pioneers uh, who inspire all of us. And then as I came along, I was kind of following from the generation of women who sort of broke down a lot of the barriers. So I benefited from that because the, the universities I went to, like I went to MIT as an undergraduate, they were truly welcoming of, of women students. They really wanted to enrich and diversify their their classes. So I was still a, a, a certainly in the minority, especially in the physics classes and things, but not, not terribly. So, you know, if, if, if there's a critical mass of whatever demographic you're in, uh, um, it doesn't have to be, you can still be a minority, but you don't feel like you're self-conscious all the time, you know? So, so I, I, um, I think I benefited from that. And, um, while most of the professors that were leading in the field were were male at the time, I felt that most of them were just very supportive and and welcoming. So I would say that I um, did not suffer any ill effects from being female in science. In fact, I felt especially welcomed. But it is it was noticeable to me that, especially as you kind of looked at the upper ranks of people in the field that it was still very, very much male dominated. So it, it does sometimes cause you to do a lot of self um, doubt, you know, and uh, self, you know, wondering if you really belong and, and um, what do they call it? The imposter syndrome that a lot of us have where you think, you know, gee, if they only really knew that I don't really understand all these things, then, they, you know, I, I wouldn't, I'd be kicked out or I don't belong here or, you know, um, other people, all the other people are better than I am. You know, so I, I went through my share of, of that kind of, you know, internal imposter syndrome. But, you know, uh, I, I really, uh, from the outside, felt welcomed all the way through. And even though it was, it was challenging in a lot of ways going, especially through graduate school and, and um, 
I, I also was able to find in the, the, the assistance that I needed. I, you know, my high school didn't offer some of the basic courses like calculus that other students had in, in my university. So I had to seek out, you know, tutoring and stuff to get caught up. And so I learned humility, you know, and I, but, uh, but I also, um, learned perseverance and, um, so, so there, there weren't any, I think, specific challenges I had as a woman other than just, you know, realizing that I was, you know, in, in a minority demographic in the field and, and, um, um, seeking out, you know, the, the encouragement that I needed and, and I found it. So I, I've, I've found it to be a very positive environment right now for women and, and growing more so. That, that's also inspiring. I, um, I also wanted to ask, um, with, I know you mentioned that you have had a case of that imposter syndrome. And I noticed that that's a thing that plagues all of us yeah. whenever mm-hmm. we achieve something or we're regarded with some sort of high status. So how did you go go about uh, coping with that or or making sure that you can still achieve what you need to achieve despite your self-doubt? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Well, um I think what I've learned and I'm still learning, you know, you, you, you're, you never, I, first of all, thing, I learned you never get to the point in your career where you, or at least not for me, where you think, wow, you know, I have absolutely made it and, you know, everything is chill from here. No, you know, you're always, and should be always challenged, always trying to, to uh, uh, push forward in new ways and challenging ways. Um, I think what I learned is that um, that I ab- that I I do belong where I am. You know, you have to 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 recognize that everyone has a different set of gifts and talents, and even in the same career path, you need people with a different mix of career of of gifts and talents for that field to progress. And so while I may not have exactly the same skill set and and mix as the person sitting next to me, they don't have the same skill set and experiences that I have. And so we work, you know, together we're stronger. So when I realize that just because I may not have the same you know, the same skill sets as the people working right around me, even, you know, whether that's in my school years or in my current current professional role, they don't have the same skill sets that I have. And so so we can learn from each other. And and I found that actually finding a career or, or a focus that does use where your talents are the strongest is very satisfying. So I found, for example, in my own case that I enjoy um, talking about what we're learning in astronomy and astrophysics and engaging public audiences and even technical audiences about what we're discovering and learning and making things um, clear and interesting and and drawing people in is um, something that is um 
something I enjoy. It's it, and I think it's a skill that I have. Oddly enough, I think I learned that from again, as I mentioned, other experiences outside of straight science can be very helpful within a scientific career. So um, I grew up in a family of uh, of faith, and and I'm a person of faith myself, and in in the church. And one thing that we learned is to value every person around you and to be friendly and welcoming. Well, those same those same um, uh, values of of being welcoming and valuing everyone everyone around you as 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 a person of value. Well, I think that's benefited in the scientific realm because I try to share what we're learning in science with everyone in a way that hopefully helps them. And I try to connect with people and draw them into the field, draw them into excitement about what we're discovering. So not everyone has those skills of public engagement. Um, Some are much better than I am at getting way down into the weeds of technical analysis and, uh, you you know, technical, uh, um, uh, uh, study and, and, you know, I get after a while, I, my eyes glaze over, you know, I just can't keep focus when, when, in, in, in the real nitty gritty for, for years and years kind of thing. So we, we, we benefit from each other's talents and skills. So I think that's, what's helped me to feel like, yeah, um, I'm interested in this field. I belong in this field so does that person next to me, even though we have a different set of talents, we're we're both valuable in this field and in advancing the study of space. That's a great answer. Yeah. Uh, so this is also sort of a personal question, but this relates to both Devin and I. Uh, so you've been through a lot of like college work and a lot of vigorous studying. Uh, and since Devin and I are both going to be freshmen in college. How did you go about really managing your time? Oh, that's a good question because, um, you know, at least for me in high school, everything was pretty clear cut. You know, you yes, you yes. had a certain class schedule every day, every week, and you had homework assignments and it was at least for me, it was pretty clear what those homework assignments were and what you needed to do to do them 100% successfully. And and uh, even extracurricular activities were, were bounded. You know, there were very specific times when the band would practice and very specific times when the sports teams would practice. And, you know, it was busy, but it was ordered. And then go to university and yeah, there's some order there, but you have a lot more freedom of how you use your time. And um, that was, you know, that's a bit of an adjustment because you need self-discipline. You Mm -hmm. need to realize that just because you have maybe a whole afternoon with no classes doesn't mean that you have a whole afternoon to goof off. You know, it means you have time to carefully um, um, self-manage that time and figure out, you know, how much time you need to be dedicating to this subject, this class, this homework, how much time you need to be dedicating to that, how much time you need to be dedicating to making sure you're exercising and doing self-care. 
So it's just, a, there's just a little bit more freedom of time and learning how to be self-disciplined in using that time is really important because instead of simply being beholden to a teacher who gives you very specific assignments and very specific deadlines and so forth, you have to kind of say, you know, I'm doing this for me. I need to learn this material and this is what I need to do to learn and to not only get my assignments done, but to maybe go above and beyond and, and, and learn a little bit more about what, um, um, what the subject matter is all about. Maybe I need to go, as I talked about these internships and seek out some, types of work that aren't in the classroom, aren't using books and paper, but are, are actually, you know, spending a few hours per week working in a lab or in a, in a, in a group where I'm getting some experience with what people in this field actually do. Um, and of course you want to have some fun with your friends and so forth, but being disciplined about that too, you know, um, you know, carving out some time for social interaction is great. You know, um, that's part of life, but, um, but you know, being disciplined about how you how you how much time you use for that, and and what's actually benefiting you and them, you know, what what's a what does a positive social life look like, you know, what's a destructive social like life look like, and um, frankly, I think that the one place that most young people start running aground is in relationships. So so um, make sure if you're choosing friendships that you choose them wisely. Make sure if you're if you, you know, decide that you want to date someone or whatever, make sure they're in that they have the same values that you do, you know, and you don't get so consumed in that, that it's really diverting from, from your bigger life path that you, that you think about that in keeping with your, your goals and your heritage and your, your values. So, um, so anyway, I don't think, I don't, I know that's not a very crisp answer, but it does require some th- thought as you go into this college environment and you can't just sort of follow the crowd and and go you know where the wind blows you need to to kind of center yourself even before you arrive on that college campus to know what it is what kind of human being you want to be as you come out the other end of that college experience and and make sure that everything you do during the college experience is in line with that that's a great answer thank you um yeah, that was that was awesome. It, I especially liked how you um, how you spoke about how you can't just give us like do this at this time, this at this time. It's you have to find your own mm-hmm. time to manage and what will work out for your goals. Um, shifting forward, you uh, have spent obviously a lot of time with the Hubble Space Telescope um, and have, I'm sure, seen astonishing things. Um, sp- speaking of the Hubble Space Telescope, what are some of the greatest um, things you've seen through it, greatest discoveries you've you've made? Well, that is a wonderful question. I'm so glad you asked. So, um, the field of astronomy, which is, you know, s- s- observing space, deep space, and astrophysics, which is using physics and the, the, uh, the other branches of science to analyze and understand 
what we're observing and and how the universe works um this field is just is just taking off because our telescopes are getting better our the 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 equipment by the way which we've needed engineers to help develop um have enabled us to see more deeply into the universe than ever before and to detect things that are difficult to detect so I would say there's kind of uh, two or three realms where things have really grown and changed in this field in recent years. One is that we are now uh, detecting planets that are orbiting other stars, stars other than our sun. So, you know, our sun is just a star, but the reason it looks okay, you know, so big and bright is that we're close to it, right? And the sun has planets like Earth orbiting it. But we didn't know, even when I was in, you know, college and graduate school, we didn't know for sure if there were planets that were orbiting other stars. I mean, we thought there were. Why would our sun be different than other stars? But we didn't have the the technology to detect these things. So through clever engineering um, uh, um, and techniques, the ability to detect these tiny little things orbiting very bright things, these uh, planets was uh, were developed, and these exoplanets, which we which are planets outside of our our solar system, were starting to be detected. Well, now we know um, over the past few decades of 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 improving these techniques we know of thousands of these star systems in our milky way galaxy neighborhood that have um planets so and now we can kind of do the statistics and, and recognize that most stars in our galaxy have at least one planet well this is really amazing because there are at least 200 billion stars in our own galaxy. So if most of them have a planet that means there's something like 200 billion planets in our own Milky Way galaxy. So now the race is on to figure out well, what are those planets like? Are they like Earth? Are they like Jupiter? Are they unlike anything in our solar system? And it's really tough because again these are tiny little bodies that can be a billion times dimmer than the star they're next to. So you you have to use specialized techniques to study anything. But we're starting to find out the makeup of the atmospheres of some of these planets, exoplanets. And that tells us something about whether they could be habitable. Also, you know, how close they are to their star. We don't know yet if there's life beyond planet Earth. Uh, on any of these in any of these systems and i'm talking about you know simple even microbial life but we're moving in that direction to see maybe byproducts of life in the atmospheres of planets that might tell us that there's some kind of simple life in other star systems so that's a very exciting field that's growing and changing this whole field of astrobiology is combining the skills of biology and geology and astronomy to try to understand how life thrives in different environments on planet earth so that we might know what to look for even on other planets and moons in our solar system and then on these exoplanets to see if there might be life or habitability so that's one area that's growing and changing another area which is kind of on a very different scale is looking at the whole universe so what i just mentioned to you was the milky way galaxy which is where our sun is and our solar system and that's a marvelous collection of hundreds of billions of stars held together in this kind of spiral pattern as you can those of you doing the podcast interview here can see in my zoom background you can see all these galaxies 
Well, it turns out that there are lots of other galaxies. We've only known that for the last century of human existence, that there are other galaxies beyond our Milky Way. And these other galaxies also have hundreds of billions of stars. And now we know that this whole ensemble of hundreds of billions of galaxies is expanding, that space itself is expanding. We've known that um, for some quite a few decades. But we also um, now know for the past several years that that expansion seems to be getting faster. So something, when I was in, in, in college, we, we only understood that the, the expansion of the universe should be slowing down because of all the mass in the universe having gravity trying to pull things back together. Now we've detected that the universe seems to be speeding up. And so there's something kind of pushing space apart we call it dark energy. So that's a real hot topic in astronomy and astrophysics to try to understand. We don't quite understand what it is, but how over the history of the universe, how has classical gravity that we understand that tries to pull things together interacted with this dark energy that's trying to push things apart. And that interplay over the history of the universe has resulted in the distribution of galaxies and how they're spaced out in the universe today. Um, so these are kind of different topical areas that I think are exciting and, and are being studied right now. And then also, you know, we're still learning things about our own solar system, our own sun and its planets that um, we have a really interesting collection of, of planets that are changing. They're, the atmospheres, the weather patterns on Jupiter change. We have rovers on Mars that are recognizing that right now Mars is like a frozen desert. Um, but if you dig a little bit under the dirt, you see that there's actually a whole layer of frozen water and you can see dried out lake beds and river beds. So we know that Mars used to have a different kind of climate with, with you know, liquid water on its surface. So trying to understand the, the history and the future of the planets in our own solar system is exciting. Even their moons are very interesting because we see... Um, we see evidence of um, of water under the ice on some of these icy cold moons around Jupiter and, and Saturn. So um, lots of exciting things. My own field is the study of star formation. So I use different kinds of telescope to, so, telescopes to look into these interstellar clouds of gas and dust that are between stars in our galaxy. And it turns out that pockets of these gas and dust continue to collapse under their own gravitational pull and form new stars. So stars are still forming and studying that process is, is very interesting, especially if you use infrared telescopes and radio telescopes that can see into some of these dark clouds where some of this action is going on, where just visible light like our eyes can see could not see through because of all the dust and the dark gas that 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 blocks the visible light. So these are some of the exciting areas that are that are worthy of study right now in astronomy. That is immensely inspiring. Like <laughs> oh my goodness. I I could just like picture the night sky now and just just imagine like each star representing something so bizarre. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I want to talk about, so you worked on the Hubble Space Telescope 
And then there's also the James Webb Space Telescope. How, I'm assuming you guys like sort of work together. And are there any things that the James Webb Telescope has that the Hubble Space Telescope has and vice versa or, or doesn't have? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, there is a relatively new big, uh, what we call a flagship class space telescope now called the James Webb Space Telescope. James Webb was the administrator of NASA back in the Apollo years. So this Webb Telescope um, started operating, um, actually it was launched into space on Christmas Day in, in uh, 2021. And now it's doing it started its scientific work it's doing great observations it's a different kind of telescope from the hubble space telescope they're complementary they're designed that way on purpose so the hubble telescope sees visible light like our eyes can see and then a little bit on either side of that spectrum so hubble can see light that's bluer than blue so this energetic ultraviolet light and a lot of um, energetic processes in space emit this ultraviolet light that we want to detect, and Hubble can do that. And then Hubble sees a little bit what we call redder than red, which is in the infrared part of the spectrum, um, which sees this lower energy light that is also very important for studying, um, especially what's going on in these interstellar clouds where stars and planets are still forming. Um, and also looking at some very reddened objects in deep space. Well, the Webb telescope is fully a, a red and infrared telescope. So it sees deeper into this infrared part of the light spectrum than Hubble can see. And it was designed to do that on purpose. Webb is a very sensitive telescope. It can see, again, deeper into these interstellar clouds of gas and dust in our Milky Way and nearby galaxies where we can see these birthplaces of new stars and even see right around those stars these disks of, of, of dusty and rocky debris where planets are forming. So Webb can see um, into these star and even planet-forming zones to tell us how this process goes on. And then on the different distance scale, Webb is designed to see some of the most distant galaxies in the universe. And if you think about it, looking very far out into space is like a time machine. You're looking very far back in time because it takes time for anything we look at in space for that light to get to us and to get to our telescope. And so the farther away something is, the longer it has taken for that light to get to us. And so we're seeing those things, stars, galaxies, not as they are right this minute, but as they were when the light began its trek to us from them. And so the most distant galaxies, we're seeing them as they were at the most distant times back in, in the universe. And Webb can see some of these baby galaxies that were just forming toward the beginning of, of our universe, um, not too long after the beginning of our universe. So, um, and the reason is that even though the stars forming in those early galaxies emitted most of their light in blue and ultraviolet colors, as they travel across space-time to get to us for billions of years, that's expanding space that I mentioned to you, 
stretches the wavelengths of light and reddens the, reddens the color of the light. So if we really want to see some of these most distant galaxies, they've been what we call redshifted, that the light that we receive is more in that infrared part of the light spectrum that the Webb telescope picks up. So Webb is designed uh, also to see some of these infant galaxies forming right near the beginning of the universe. And Hubble can see more detail about what's going on in, in galaxies that are a little closer to us in space and time. So having both of these observatories allows us to build a kind of a timeline to see how galaxies grow and change over billions of years as the stars within them come and go. Uh, so it's really fascinating. We're, mm -hmm. We believe our universe, uh, for we have different lines of evidence, but that the universe that we that we live in had a, an amazing beginning about 13.8 billion years ago. And we still see the the background radiation from that, what we call Big Bang uh, uh, beginning. Um, but um, we're seeing these early galaxies form within the first point eight of that 13.8 billion year history of the universe. And then we can kind of piece together how the universe over time through generations of stars coming and going in, in galaxies became what it is today and became more hospitable to life because stars actually, as they come and go, they produce um, they produce heavier elements. Even our sun right now, the reason it's shining is this process of fusion going on in its core. And that that process of fusion is is taking simple elements like hydrogen and eventually producing heavier elements like carbon and oxygen. And then when stars burn out, they release that material into the interstellar clouds, and then they get swept up in the next generations of stars. And when you have those heavier elements, you can have, you know, the formation of, of, of planetary systems because you can have solids. So we are grateful that the universe has had generations of stars come and go so that we can have star systems like our own solar system now with planets and that can support life. So it's it's really fascinating to use these different kinds of observatories and their different capabilities to build a picture of how the universe is operating and how it's developed over time. And there are other telescopes too. I mean, we've mentioned Hubble and Webb, but there are quite a few other telescopes that have been in space or are in space. Some of the smaller ones you don't hear about as much, but they're doing some very important specialized observations. We have the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which is a major space telescope. And we have a lot of big professional telescopes on the ground. And so even though they have to look through the atmosphere of Earth, um, which is which can be challenging, they also have capabilities that these space telescopes don't have, capabilities to do long surveys of the sky and do other kinds of things. So astronomers typically use a combination of telescopes that have different capabilities for seeing different kinds of light or different fields of view of the sky or some telescopes on the ground, some in space to get a bigger picture and understanding of whatever is being studied, whether it's galaxies or stars or planets. Wow. That part about um, the, the red shifted galaxies was especially interesting how the, the physical, um, the physical change in the universe as it expands can shift the wavelengths of light so much to where it's literally redder. Um, 
I know you have, as you said, talked about, I mean, as you said, you have taken a lot of looks at the formation of stars. And I wanted to ask, I know that most, um, it's a general consensus that at the center of most galaxies would be a supermassive black hole. Do you have um, any research or insight as to how those supermassive black holes, one, are made, and two, become so massive? Sure. So a, a black hole, you know, and, and uh, it's, you know, science fiction loves black holes. It's so cool. But really, all a black hole is, is just a whole lot of mass that's crunched into a small volume. And so, uh, you know, Albert Einstein helped us understand that all mass, including you and me, all anything that has mass actually distorts space-time a little bit. I mean, not very much, but if it's not much mass. But when you get to these bigger masses, like, like the mass of a star or something like that, you can actually detect how its distortion of space right around it um, affects the path of light. Like if you, we use telescopes now to see something called gravitational lensing, which means if you look at a, a, a massive object like a star and then something passes behind it, you can see the light from that object behind it kind of having a distorted path as it passes around that foreground star because of the distorted space. Now, if you take um, an, a star, a big star that actually uh, runs out of fuel and 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 can't support itself anymore, that star, especially big ones, will collapse. And sometimes part of that involves a big explosion as well. We call it a supernova. But the leftover debris of that old star that can't support itself anymore collapses down into a really small volume so when you have a lot of mass in a really small volume, that distortion of space gets really strong. It, the gravitational field becomes very strong. And in fact, if it's if there's enough mass in a small enough space, we call it a black hole because within a certain distance from that collapsed object, the, the, the distortion of space is so strong that light just gets caught you know, in that space. It can't get out. And so that's why we call it a black hole, because it's black. We can't see any light coming out of it. Um, you can see material right around that radius of the black hole, of that you know point of no return. And so you've seen maybe lately some images of black holes. Um, that's the radius around where stuff is kind of falling into that region around a black hole, maybe orbiting a little bit. And that stuff falling in can be very energetic and release a lot of light. And you can see that. But once material gets within that certain radius, you can't see it. Now, uh, a single big star can create a black hole, as I just mentioned. In fact, we think there's a whole lot of them in our galaxy, which they're just hard to detect because we can't see them. We can only detect them if they distort light from something in the background, and we can see that distorted light. At the cores of galaxies, which have hundreds of billions of stars, we believe that that's the place where eventually stars that are orbiting around the galaxy, they eventually migrate down toward the center of galaxies, including a lot of these older dead stars uh, migrate in. 
and the gravity pulls stuff together. So eventually you've got a lot of little black holes and dead stars that are pulled together and that creates an enormous gravitational pull. So here you've got a mega version of what I just described, a whole lot of mass in a repository in the center of galaxies. And that mass, of course, creates huge gravitational pull, which just pulls the stuff in even tighter. So you've got a huge amount of mass, sometimes millions of times the mass of the sun, sometimes even billions the, the time, the, the amount of mass of our sun compacted into a small volume. Well, as you can imagine, that creates an enormous distortion of space and space time right around that compacted region of mass and in the middle of galaxies. And Hubble actually helped us discern that there are supermassive black holes in the cores of galaxies. Again, not by, you can't actually see the black hole, but we could see the material orbiting. And by the laws of orbits, if you've got something very massive to stay in orbit around that, you have to be moving very fast. They're actually orbiting something called the center of mass between all of that mass. And so we could see that stars and gas orbiting the centers of other galaxies were doing so very fast. And just a simple calculation would tell you that that means there must be a whole lot of mass in a very small volume. And the only thing that fits that description is a supermassive black hole. So that's uh, uh, that is true, that a supermassive black hole seemed to be at the core of, of most galaxies. And even our own Milky Way seems to have a supermassive black hole in its core. There were telescopes on the ground actually that helped uh, um, monitor the motions of stars in our own Milky Way around the core of our galaxy and, and real, realizing that their velocities meant that there must be something dark and supermassive in, in a compact region at the core. Um, Andrea Getz is someone who got a Nobel Prize uh, recently for this detection. So, um, that's another example of a, of a superb a woman in astrophysics who's done a major achievement. It's nice. That's incredible. Um, I also wanted to ask, I understand that Newton described, Isaac Newton described gravity as a force. Um, and it wasn't until Einstein came around that we that he proposed it as being an actual warping in space and time. Now, how in that case, with do both definitions almost coincide and a lot of Newtonian physics still work? Well, this is, this is amazing. So, so our lives that we live, um, we don't often see, at least we don't perceive the effects of what we call general relativity. But Einstein could see uh, uh, um, this bigger picture of general relativity and then uh, some special cases that we call special relativity. Um, but in our daily life, um, we see we live within that reality, but our lived experience often doesn't doesn't encounter some of the more what we would call bizarre outworkings of that. So um, it's all consistent, but we can often simplify 
um, things through what you what you what you just mentioned, Newtonian laws of physics, which work on the types of scales of length and motion that we typically live in, and they are simplifications of these bigger laws of general astrophysics, general relativity that Einstein um, uh, helped us understand. So, um, you know, what lived experience in a smaller regime of these forces of the, and these aspects of space and time um, can be approximated by simpler laws and that generally works pretty well. But uh, but then when you work in the in the full realm of the universe, you're working, uh, you're looking at things that have um, uh, things moving in some cases near the speed of light around some of these supermassive black holes in the centers of galaxies. That's a regime that we don't normally experience. But if you don't understand general relativity, you won't understand how the physics, how the how space time is working, how light is even working in the, these regions. So, so you need these bigger general astrophysics and, and general relativity laws to understand the big picture, but you don't need them often for daily life, where the regimes in which we live and work can be approximated through simplified versions of these forces that that uh, we've learned through Newton and so forth. Thank you. Great. Uh, I have one last question before we okay. end it. What is your advice for the class of 2023? Oh, well, um, I would say um, be encouraged. We have a lot of excitement ahead of us as humanity, scientific discovery, um, you know, in astronomy and astrophysics, there's a lot of interest. I, I actually believe science is a way to unify the world. Young people around the world want to do exciting things they want to do it together you know we have collaborations with scientists from many different countries um it's a curiosity is a uniting factor um we can use science and technology for good things including exploration of the universe and exploration of the oceans um we're learning things about the other animals and creatures on this planet and how we are uh, uh, related and how we can live together peacefully um, so I would say be encouraged. Even the big problems of our planet, um, you know, uh, environmental challenges, climate change, these kinds of things, um, these are not unsolvable problems. You know, mm -hmm. we can actually um, look at them constructively and find ways, constructive ways to go forward, um, especially if we do it in an inclusive way so that um, everybody has a chance to be involved and that we're working across boundaries that have separated people in so much in the past. Um, I believe we need to look into our hearts too. You know, a, a lot of the, the ugliness that goes on in the world originates from the human heart. So we need to examine that and, um, and, uh, and uh, go forward in hope. So I, I really think you have a lot to look forward to and there are many different career paths that you can take that will lead to something really positive for yourself and for the world around you. And to think about your life in in the in the lens of service, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's not all about me, right? You know, it's yeah. about you know how can I use the specific gifts and situations that I'm in to help somebody else, either in, in the small scale, but also on 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 larger scales. So. Um, so I would say be encouraged, 
um, you have a purpose, you have, uh, you have things you can contribute to the world and, um, you know, keep, keep encouraged. Life has its ups and downs. Don't get caught in the downs. You have a future, you have a hope and, uh, you have something bright to look forward to. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Um, this was a great, great interview and we learned a whole lot. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Super. Well, I'm I'm glad for your interests, and I wish you all the very best going forward. Thank you for tuning in to the Creative for Greatness podcast. Check out our website at striveinitiative.org for more information. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss the next episode. Tell a friend, spread the word, and be great. Clap it up! Clap it up! We out.